0: Christmas Eve, 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 Eve. Yes. (laughs) There we go. Surprise. Surprise. We told you we were done, and we are. Mostly. But we have a little surprise for you, a little a little pre-Christmas gift. A pre-Christmas gift. That I think you guys are really going to enjoy. I have to kind of hype it up because it's something from Seth, so yeah, you can't I, hype yourself up too much. At the end of the last episode, I kind of talked about where I worship Jesus most right. in the book of Exodus, and I actually preached a sermon on that for our church. About Exodus 3 and I Am and God in the Burning Bush. Or yeah, I, there's some Lord of the Rings quotes in there. Ooh, always good. Oh yeah, it's it's real, It's real. I liked it. I like well, preaching good. it. Yeah. Um, and so I just want to share it with you guys. It's a yeah. different way to engage in the Book of Exodus. I hope it's encouraging to you as you ramp up into the Christmas season, which I know can be a difficult time for a lot of people, so many people. Yep. Um, so please r- listen and. Um, Love you guys. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're excited. Here's just another way for you to ingest the book of Exodus and seeing Jesus in it. So uh, we're going to play for you a um, a, a recording of a sermon Seth gave here at uh, Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City on Exodus 3, right? That's right. All right. Well, enjoy, guys. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I want you guys to walk away knowing one thing today, and that is that God is with you. God is with you. You just heard the intertwined stories of a nation suffering under a savage dictatorship and the insecurity of the man tasked to lead them. And the message God gives to both suffering Israel and insecure Moses is the same. It's his name, Yahweh. I am who I am. I am with you. What I want to do is I want to trace both stories and show how the response that we We, today, most need in our suffering or our senses of inadequacy is that God is with us. We're two chapters into the book of Exodus, and what we have been told so far is that Israel has been enslaved for 400 years. The entire race of people labeled Jews has been put under the thumb of a powerful yet paranoid pharaoh. And Pharaoh has become, become uncomfortable with the growing number of slaves that he has. And so he, afraid of a rebellion, decides to um, kill them. He's afraid that they're going to topple his power. So he orders all the midwives of Egypt to, after birth, abort every male son, to ethnically cleanse every Hebrew boy as he takes his first breath. But they wouldn't. And Pharaoh, recognizing that he doesn't have the uh, influence over the medical professionals he thought he has, commands the entire nation to be complicit in genocide with him. He commands all the people of Egypt to come with him and throw all boys, if they see them, into the Nile River. It's not just the Pharaoh's Gestapo or the secret police, but every single person is supposed to be complicit and involved in the murder of the Hebrew boys. They're all thrown in the Nile River. And there's one mom who hears the edict, hears the command, and obeys. She throws her son into the river herself, but in a basket. And this basket just so happens to make its way to the footsteps of Pharaoh's daughter. Crazy. And then this daughter picks up the the baby, decides to keep it, and names it Moses. And for 40 years, Moses grows up. Um, in Pharaoh's palace. But all the while knowing that he was supposed to lead God's people out of slavery. He knew that he was supposed to deliver God's people, his people, but he didn't quite know how. And then one day he sees his chance. He sees an Egyptian slave master beating a Hebrew slave. And so he goes up to the Egyptian slave master and kills him. And Acts 7.25 tells us that Moses thought that this was the moment that he was going to deliver the people of Israel. This would prove that he was on the Israelite side and that he was bringing deliverance. He thought it was going to happen, that people would come around him, they would march out of Israel in that moment. But do you know what happens? Nobody believes him. He fails. And instead, Moses is forced to flee from under the wrath of Pharaoh. And he runs into the deserts of Midian where he meets his wife. And as Moses' family starts to grow and he has his first son and then his second son, Israel continues to weep that all of their sons are still drowning in the Nile River. Under the weight of oppression, they cry out to the God their ancestors worship, and God responds to their cry in Exodus 2, 23, and 25, and it says this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died while Moses was in Midian. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. God heard, God saw, and God knew. God knew their suffering. And he knew he would, what he was going to do about it. He was going to come down in Moses. The cries went up to the people of God, and God was going to come down and deliver them by Moses' hands. And so at this point, it kind of plays out like that scene, like some kind of crazy action movie where there's all this crazy stuff happening. There's genocide. People are running everywhere. Pharaoh's coming. There's a failed insurrection. He leaves town, flees, and the screen cuts to black. And, it should, and across the screen, you see 40 years later. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob opens up the Bible on a scene, like pictures, and Moses is 80 years old, an old man. He's living in the desert. He's married, has two kids, and he's working for his father-in-law as a shepherd. One day, as he's walking his sheep, he passes by this mountain called Horeb. Um, It's also called Sinai in the book of Exodus. And he sees a bush That's covered in flames, but it's not burning, which is strange enough. But suddenly the bush starts speaking to him, and it's God's voice. In Exodus uh, 3, 6 through 10, it says this, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God heard, God saw, God knows, and God is coming down. And to Moses' shock, God is going to use him, Moses, the disgraced son of old Pharaoh, who himself, and he's old, he's 80, And Moses asks in verse 11, Who am I to go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You can imagine being in Moses' shoes in that moment. You're a murderer. You're a failed insurrectionist. The superpower has enslaved an entire race of people. And God is asking you to go back there and do what you've already failed to do. You'd probably ask with Moses, Who am I to go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of the land of Egypt? I'm not that important, I'm not that impressive, I'm just a mom, I'm just a dad, I'm just 15, I'm 80, I'm too old for this stuff, I'm just a plumber, I'm just an accountant. But God does not allow Moses to play the I'm just a shepherd card. He doesn't even do the thing we might expect and say, Moses, don't worry, I was grooming you all that time in Egypt, I was preparing you, I was making sure that you had all the experience, you were ready, you were born for such a time as this, he doesn't do that. Instead, in verse 12, God says, But I will be with you. But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of the land of Egypt, you will serve God, you will worship God on this mountain. What's God's response to Moses' sense of insecurity? But I will be with you. God's response to Moses' inadequacy is himself. I will. Will be with you. It's not about Moses being the most qualified man in Midian. It's about God being with him. And one of the things I've appreciated about the book of Exodus as I've studied it in our student ministry is the missional thrust of the book of Exodus. It's this outward facing book that says Israel will proclaim to the nations by what God has done in Israel the goodness of God, and other people will come to know God because of what happens in Israel. This is like an outward facing book. And one of the things that we are supposed to take from it as readers is that we have a very similar task to Moses, you and I as Christians. We're supposed to go up to Pharaohs and tell them to let God's people go. That might happen for some of us on the national scale, on the citywide scale as you work in politics, but every single one of us is called to do that with our friends and families as well. Paul, the apostle Paul in the New Testament will reach back and borrow images and language from the book of Exodus and say when he's describing the world apart from Christ, he says that we are slaves to sin. Paul, imagine there's this little Pharaoh reigning over every unbelieving heart and our responsibility as people who've been liberated and saved by God's grace is to command like Moses did, let my people go. God has sent me to you. Let my sister, my friend, my waitress go. I have been sent to you. When we put it in that context, we kind of quickly realize and ask with ourselves but the, all those but questions. But, but who am I to do that? But she's my mom, and there's so much baggage there. But he's my barber, and I kind of want a good haircut today. <laughs> but he, I'm her teacher, and that gets really complicated really fast. But she's my supervisor, and I don't know what that's going to do. But ultimately, under all those things, the question really is, but who am I? Who am I to say something to somebody like that? And God's response to you and to Moses is the same. It's a simple, I will be with you. But he also, on top of being with us, gives Moses a sign. He says, the sign that I have sent you will be that you worship God right here on Mount Sinai. And he has given us a very similar sign, the same sign, in fact, Moses' proof was that they would gather around Mount Sinai and worship God together. But for us, on this side of Jesus, it's happening right now. Sunday morning, 9 a.m., the church. The fact that there are believers gathered together right now, singing, listening to God's word preached, that you are served by people practicing their spiritual gift of hospitality in the cafe, is proof that you are sent In the same way that worship around the mountain of Sinai was proof that God's people were sent. Proof that you are worshiping here today is proof that you're sent as well. Not one soul in this room would be here if it wasn't for God sending somebody else, whether your brother, your mother, your parents, your siblings, or your coworker, to bring you. The only reason you are here is if somebody else was praying, God, let this person go. The sign that you most need is already present here. Right here, you're looking at them. And beyond that, you are already given the best qualification you need. God is with you. And maybe you're like, okay, Seth, that sounds great. I'm nervous now. That kind of compels me to go. And you're wondering, well, what would I even say if I got up enough courage to go and talk to somebody? Maybe the follow-up but question, but to who am I, is, but what would I say? And that's exactly what Moses asks next in verse 13. He says this in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, Well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? (laughs) Moses assumes that his audience in Egypt won't be convinced by some guy saying, Hey, I saw God in a burning bush. Um, He knows they're going to want more information, they're going to want to know precisely who he's talking about. And if you're a non-believer in this room, you are you can probably sympathize with that. And perhaps, like the people of Israel, you're a person who is skeptical about the claims of God, but you're also suffering. And perhaps you've come today here looking at, for hope. Or maybe the only reason here you're here is because your annoying Christian friend dragged you here. But either way, I'm sure you still want to know. What... Is this God that Moses is meeting, that I'm describing, that we're worshiping, all about? What's so compelling about him? Who is he really? And the way that Moses asked that same question is by asking for God's name. And God's asking, he's asking for more than it's like, Hi, I'm God, my name's Joe. He's asking for more information than that. Names carry a lot of meaning in the Bible, they describe like the essence of the person who the people who carry them. So this is why God will change people's names throughout the books of the Bible. So he changes Abram's name to Abraham because he's the father of many nations, Sarai to Sarah, Uh, Jacob to Israel, Uh, uh, Jewish uh, Saul to Gentile Paul. And the idea that when Moses asks for God's name, he's not really expecting a simple reply. He's asking for the compelling reason why people should listen to him. He's asking for his name, the essence of who God is. He's asking for a, the content behind the question, but what will I say? In Lord of the Rings, there's this great uh, character called Treebeard. He's an ant. He's a, li- like, he's a living tree. And, you know, trees being trees and magic being magic, he lives for, like, thousands of years. The entire race of the ants lived for thousands and thousands of years. And um, they just live on a completely different timescale. Their language is long and drawn out, and they talk like this. And there's this great scene in the movie uh, where Mary and Pippin, two of the other characters, gather all the Ents together to declare war. They gather them together in the morning, and they all start discussing in Entish their language. And the whole day goes by, and finally they get impatient, like, OK, what's the plan? Where are we going? And then Treebeard responds, Why, we have just finished saying hello. <laughs> Mary and Pippin, later on in the book, I don't think this is seen as actually in the movie, at one point ask for Treebeard's name. They say, what's your name, Treebeard? What's your Entish name? And uh, he refuses to give it to them. And he says this to them in the book. For one thing, it would take a long while. My name is growing all the time. And I've lived a very long, long time. So my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of the things they belong to. This is what God is asking, this is what Moses is asking from God, the name that takes a very, very long time to say. It's the story of who he is and what he's like and what he will do. He's asking for a story that will compel skeptical and suffering Israelites to trust Moses and worship God on the mountain. And unlike Shrebeard, God responds. God said to Moses, I am who I am and he said say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you now as Christians we've become very familiar with this phrase but this should not feel like the expected response from God when asked for his name well for one thing it's a verb I am but it's also really cryptic it's it's confusing but I think like all good answers to deep questions it's, Very simple, but also profound. I am who I am. What I think God is doing is He's giving Israel the same answer He already gave to Moses I am with you. God heard the cry of the people of Israel, He saw their suffering, He knew their affliction, and what did He do? He came down. He is. Present, Yahweh, I am with you, and He will be with you, and He's always been with you. That's the story, that's the compelling narrative that He's supposed to communicate that God never leaves, that even after 400 years, He's still there, He's still listening, He knows He's with them, and He is coming down. I am, I promise. But Moses continues to question his ability to carry out the task, and he is doubtful of how the people of Israel will receive this name of God, I am. Then Moses answered, But behold, they won't believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And you can probably sense on Moses' side of this a little bit of him missing the point and fixating on the wrong thing. You should sense his insecurity in this moment. He's saying, look, God, I'm not that believable. I tried this 40 years ago, and I failed. I even killed an Egyptian, and they would not believe me then. What makes you think that I can do this now, and people will follow me? I'm sure we've all felt that same when we were talking about Jesus, too, like to our, our friends and family, that, that like spontaneous cotton mouth that like reminds you of all your past failures, and suddenly you forget the most basic things about Christianity. But God is with us. He's with Moses too. So God gives Moses three signs to prove that he is with them and also to prove to the the non-believing and skeptical Israelites that he's there too. The first sign is that he throws a stick on the ground and becomes a snake and he picks it back up again. The next one is that he puts his hand into his cloak and becomes leprous. And the third one, and then puts it back in and it's not. And the third one is he... If those two don't work, he's supposed to pick up a cup of water from the Nile River and pour it out. And when it hits the ground, it'll turn to blood. And the point of each of these signs is to communicate one fact. I am with you. I am with you in power. Not just with you, Moses, but to convince the people of Israel. It's not about you being believable. It's about me being with you. But Moses Still doesn't buy it. <laughs> Verse 10. Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And God finally gets angry at Moses. God, like a surge of flames, roars at him. Who made man's mouth? Was it not me? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind. Is it not I, Yahweh? Is it not I, Yahweh, I am with you? Now therefore go, and I will be Yahweh your mouth. (laughs) Moses is still assuming that it's his presence, his skill, his qualifications that are going to convince the elders and the people of Israel And God responds a final time to his insecurity by saying, you know, Moses, never mind who you are. I am. I made you, and I am right here. I am with your mouth. I am with your weaknesses. I am Yahweh. And I think one of the things he shows us, believing brothers and sisters, is that if we always have a reason that we are not qualified, that we're not able, that it's not the right time to share God's story in his name, that's not because you're that incapable. That's not because that you're that unable. It's because, like Moses, you're proud. You think that your present weakness is more powerful than God's presence with you. God is with you. Therefore, go into all nations, baptizing them, preaching the name of Jesus Christ, Why? Because he is with you always, even unto the end of the age. Believing that God is with us is difficult in our insecurity. Believing him that he's with us in our insecurity and that actually matters is really hard. But it's even more difficult when we're suffering. When we're suffering, it's really hard to feel seen or known by God, especially when other people are so bad at sitting with you in it, Right? you've lost a family member or there's no food back home or money in your bank account or you're chronically depressed or anxious, you know other people just don't get it. They misunderstand. They offer advice too quickly. They're there, they're not there when you need them to be there and they're still at your house when you wish they would just go away. Everyone's advice and counsel kind of falls flat and you never feel like anyone really knows, sees, hears, or understands you. And slowly, it often happens that there's this like growing bitterness in your heart. Everything is proof of how bad other people are at helping you, especially so-called Christians. This slow hardness of heart, slow calcification enters. And you never admit it out loud, but your life begins to preach one message. I'm on my own. I'm alone in all of this. Even if we never phrase it that way, the question we're normally asking is, if everybody God made is so bad at being present with me in my suffering, is God any better at it? Is God really with me? The Israelites, centuries into their slavery, were asking that same question. God, are you even here? Rewind with me back to those three signs that um, Moses is supposed to perform for the elders of Israel. These three signs were supposed to prove that God was with Moses, that God had sent Moses. They proved that God was hearing, knowing, and seeing their affliction. It was supposed to prove that God was with them. But do you wonder why it was only the last sign that was so convincing? Moses was supposed to perform the next sign, only if they didn't believe the first one. So what was it about the water from the Nile turning to blood that was so convincing? Um, scholars will point to the fact that the snake, leprosy and um, the Nile were very important in Egyptian mythology and like political power, the snake, you, you've seen like pictures of a pharaoh, there's that snake on his crown leprosy was apparently pretty common in Egypt and the Nile River was like the lifeblood of the entire nation so there's a sense in which God is doing these miracles to prove that he's powerful over everything that Egypt stands for or what it's known for but I think there's also something else going on here I think part of the answer is that the turning of the water into blood makes real for the people of Israel that God knows their deepest pains. Because if you think about it, these elders were responsible for a nation of people in the wake of genocide. Every family had lost sons and brothers. These elders were responsible for a nation grieving. And the weapon that massacred them was The Nile River, thousands and thousands of boys drowned in the water. And if you are a slave in the desert nation of Egypt, where do you get your water? You get it from the Nile. You get it from the same place your son was murdered. Every day begins with mothers drinking water from a mass grave. Every day begins with bathing their... Your living children in what must have felt like a bloodbath, a literal bloodbath. You would wash your clothes in what must have seemed like the blood of your son. The sign of turning water from Nile into blood is convincing because it proves that God knows. He's right there. He sees their pain. He knows what's most difficult. He understands. He's not absent. He's not far off. He's right there. He is Yahweh. I am. I am with you. And when the people understand this, when the people hear this, do you know what happens in verse um, 30 and 31? They worship. Aaron spoke all the words uh, that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that that he had seen their affliction, they bowed down their heads and worshipped. They believed and they worshipped. Israel worshipped in response to God's signs that he was with them in their deepest possible pain. But did you notice what Moses did? even after all this, in verse 13? Oh my Lord, please send somebody else. (laughs) Even in belief, there's this reluctance and disbelief, as if God's presence in these signs is not enough. And sure enough, the book of Exodus is going to show us over and over again that they aren't that the signs are not enough to compel people to believe. Israel, even after they worship God right here, even after they see these three signs, even after they see 10 plagues fall from Egypt, on Egypt but not on them, even after they pass through the Red Sea, even after a cloud appears and shades them from the heat of the desert sun, even a pillar of fire appears and protects them from the desert cold, even though God speaks to them from a literal mountain, do you know what God's people do? They worship a golden calf. They literally create a different God. And so as a reader of the book of Exodus, you should feel the need to cry with Moses, oh my Lord, please send somebody else. We're not saying that out of disbelief, but because there must be a better answer. We're still waiting in some senses for a sign that proves God is actually with us, a sign that is incontrovertible proof to those that are insecure and suffering, that God is here. But if rivers of blood and God speaking from mountains is not enough, what will be? And I think Moses says it, "O oh my Lord, please send someone else." ultimately the only thing that will convince our insecure, non-believing and suffering hearts that God is with us is if he actually shows up. If God becomes the sign himself. And that sign is a someone. That sign is Jesus Christ. On the night he's born, we're told his name. Emmanuel. God with us. In Jesus, Yahweh, I am, has come down. And like Yahweh saw, heard, and knew the suffering of his people of Israel, we're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus saw, heard, knew, and experienced our pains and our sorrows. Because we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who is every way as tempted as we are, yet without sin. God in Jesus doesn't just perform signs from heaven to show his sympathy. He becomes human. And all of the sudden, It's not just the fathers and mothers of Israel who mourn the loss of their sons. God mourns the loss of his son, too. I know many of you in this room have lost children. And many of you know that our family has as well. I remember having to look all over Oklahoma City for uh, Reuben's grave. And I remember just nowhere feeling good enough. Um, Even the nicest cemeteries left me feeling like he deserves better. He deserves better. He deserves better. And when I finally chose the cemetery, you're not really done in that moment. You still have to choose where they're going to be buried in that seminary, uh, cemetery. And the way it works is that they have kind of this folder to you, and there's like a little squ- a little square, and in it's 16 other squares, and they say just choose the plot that you're going to point to. And so I had to point, and I said uh, slot 11, and it just broke me. My son's life diminished to a paper square, a number, three square feet of dirt. But God did the same. Not a gardener sitting in this world would have been worthy of Jesus' graves. And of all the plots of land available to him, God had to choose a hillside in Israel. He placed his finger on history's page and said he will be buried there. What a diminishment. The author of light buried in the dark. But do you know what it shows us who are suffering and have lost families and it shows the people of Israel? That God knows, that Yahweh hears, that Emmanuel has come down, that God is with us. Not all of us have lost a child, but most of us have suffered. And what we need most in our suffering is to know that God is with us and that must be It must be our only comfort. And Paul tells us why in 2 Corinthians 1.5. He says this, For because as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we abundantly share in comfort too. Our suffering, Paul is saying, makes most sense when it's placed inside the story of Jesus' suffering. It's not just that God has suffered like us but that we are suffering like him. And if Yahweh's son, if Emmanuel himself, if God with us suffered, died, but then rose from the dead, when you are in him, that will always be your story too. Death and suffering will not be the end, but will be the beginning of all comfort. The Nile River was death to Israel, It was a place of their deepest pain and vulnerability, but it was also a sign of their coming redemption. A sign that God was coming down ultimately in Jesus so that our anxiety and depression and grief and sorrow and struggle, while they might feel like death, will ultimately become signs that our coming liberation and future comfort is guaranteed. Yes, the grave has swallowed up, my son, but Jesus has swallowed up the grave. You might not feel that's possible considering the pain that you're currently experiencing right now. I know the statistics hold true that over about 60% of the women and reaching 50% in this room have been sexually assaulted at some point in their lives. And the pain and shame you experience from that does not go away easily. But Jesus knows that too. We don't talk about it much, but he hung naked on the cross a calculated aspect of his torture, that those in power would prove their dominance by exploiting the sexuality of their victim. Jesus was objectified and assaulted for you. His humanity diminished by the exposing of his body for the pleasure of others as they literally gambled away what was left of his dignity. And that's not just so that God would sympathize with you. That's so that God could nail your shame to a cross, and promise resurrection from it. Yahweh knows, Emmanuel has come, God is with you, and as you share abundantly in Christ's suffering, you will also share abundantly in his comfort as well. I know for many of you in this room, you are depressed or anxious. You either can't get out of bed, or you can't fall asleep at night. And you spend nights sobbing, trying not to wake the person next to you, but also desperately wishing they would just wake up and say something. If that's you, Jesus knows. Overwhelmed and weeping tears of blood, he turns to his disciples, you know what? They're all asleep, dead to the world. Yahweh knows, Emmanuel has come, and God is with you. And as you share in that particular suffering, that particular suffering of Christ, you will also share abundantly in his comfort. God will offer you the comfort that you cannot receive from others. Have you ever been cheated on? Has a husband or wife betrayed you for another partner? Does it feel just like you lost everything and wasted your life? Do they take your friends with them? God knows. Jesus spent three years eating, sleeping, trusting, mentoring Judas only for him to, to betray him with that intimate gesture, a kiss. And then moments after his betrayal, the rest of the disciples scattered, leaving him to suffer and die alone on the cross. Even God Even God left. God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus suffers betrayal and loneliness, not just so we can sympathize with you, but so that unfaithfulness, even our own, would never divorce us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Yahweh knows, Emmanuel has come, God is with you, and as you share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so also you will share abundantly in his comfort. And I could go on. But if you are in Jesus, if you trust in him with your suffering, we're told that you are part of his body and that he knows your pain. He feels it. He is with you because he is in you. So don't lose heart. Intimacy with Jesus, being with Jesus, being in God's story is often purchased with pain. So as we end today, here's what I want to commend you when you go home. If you are insecure or if you're suffering, place yourself inside the story of Jesus. Read yourself into the story. Discipline your mind so that the most compelling narrative is one that said suffering ends in resurrection because God has come to me in Jesus. Read the Gospels with an eye of seeing Jesus' many sorrows so that you can experience his many comforts as well. If you're a writer, rewrite the story of Jesus with you as part of it. Read the sufferings of other Christian men and women who said it is worth suffering for the glory of the Lord that we tasted. And last of all, I would pray. Pray that you would consider your insecurity and suffering a worthy price to pay for knowing Jesus' comfort and presence more intimately. Behold, I am with you always. Emmanuel, God with us. So as we close today, let me pray that God would be with all of you. Lord, as we end and as we worship, I pray that we would know that God is with us in a a life marked by insecurity and suffering. I pray that we would know that you are with us. The name you declare over us is I am with you. That you know our pain, you have seen our affliction, and that you have come down in Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God is with us. Lord, I pray that it would be a real comfort for people in this room. That it would not be a platitude, it would not be something Christian people say, but it would be a felt reality as we worship the God who has come down. Lord, please let us know that God is with us. In the name of Jesus, amen.